quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. How cool is that image? Anderson, thank you. I am Michael Smirkanish, in for Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. And welcome also to the first official Juneteenth federal holiday in our nation's history, complete with its own flag. Hoisted in places like Wisconsin today, the single white star symbolizing both Texas, where the last enslaved people in this country were told they were free, and the freedom of all African Americans in this country. And it was a Texas lawmaker today who reminded us that while one battle for equality is finally finished, others are in limbo right now in Congress. We steadfastly work day after day for 12 years. And it says that you voted for this holiday. Now you can vote for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. You can fix the voting system to give us voting rights to protect against those voter suppression laws. But the sweeping voting rights bill, S-1, it's frozen. While moderate Senator Joe Manchin waves the flag of bipartisanship, the fate of his new slimmed down counterproposal to his fellow Democrats might be a foregone conclusion. That's because Minority Leader Mitch McConnell once again seems more intent on acting like a blockade. Equally unacceptable, totally inappropriate. All Republicans, I think, will oppose that as well, if that were to be uh, surfaced on the floor. Yet Manchin's counter is gaining traction on the left with voting rights advocate Stacey Abrams. She's even signaling possible openness to his call for a voter ID requirement. What Senator Manchin is putting forward are some basic building blocks that we need to ensure that democracy is accessible no matter your geography. Our point is simply that the restrictions on the forms of ID should meet the needs of the people. And what he is proposing makes sense. Abrams' voice, of course, matters, but she's not in Congress. And even if Manchin can get his entire party on board with his changes, that only gets the Democrats to 50 votes. 10 shy, where this is not a matter of reconciliation. So what is this really all about? To put up a good showing and still lose so that the public sees GOP obstruction on another major issue like the June 6th commission? Or is it deeper? That this time it'll be a mansion initiative that fails so that he experiences the result firsthand, perhaps softening him on the filibuster. Is there a bigger objective here? The Biden administration has a vested interest as well because this is proof that outside of reconciliation, they can't get anything done and the clock is ticking toward the midterms, which might make matters even worse. With me tonight, another prominent voice in the voting rights battle, former Democratic Congressman and presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke. Thanks so much for being here, Congressman. You heard my observation that Joe Manchin gets you to 50, 
but he doesn't get you to 60. So what's really the purpose? Well, I like the progress that we've seen so far this week. I mean, the, the news story prior to this week was that Joe Manchin was a no on the For the People Act, the major voting rights bill before the Senate. Now he's back at the table and he's talking and negotiating and he's saying some things that are fundamental to the voting rights bill that passed the House. That, that's a good sign. So let's see what happens on Tuesday when the Senate takes its first procedural vote on the For the People Act. Well, let's not just wait to see what happens after that. Let's continue to push those senators. It's why we are rallying at the Texas Capitol this Sunday, 5.30 p.m. in Austin. We want to get as many Texans together where we are at the front lines in this fight for voting rights and push not just our state legislators, but push those U.S. senators who have the power to save democracy at a time that it's under attack, unlike any other time in American history. I'm trying to unpeel this onion, and what occurs to me is that maybe the objective this time is that it will be a Joe Manchin initiative on the receiving end of this sort of a failed vote. Maybe then the purpose is, if he feels the sting, he'll reevaluate his position vis-a-vis the filibuster. How does that sound to you? That might very well happen. Um, you, you go back to the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and you know before that was presented to Congress, I think the conventional political wisdom was it would never get past Southern Senate Democrats and, and House Democrats. But when enough people stood up, stepped out, spoke out, it began to move the country and it kind of engaged the conscience of America, none more so than John Lewis, of course, trying to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in March of 1965. And, and LBJ actually refers to that when he's speaking to that joint session of Congress, encouraging them to move forward on this. I think what Stacey Abrams is doing nationally by asking us all to call our U.S. senators, what we're trying to do here in Texas by engaging the state in this massive rally on Sunday at the Capitol, what folks are doing across the country, that's the kind of pressure that will help to move something. Because as you suggested at the outset, it's not enough to have a show or a symbolic vote. If we don't pass this, it's it's existential. You, you will lose the right to vote in states like Texas, where it is already harder to vote than in any other state in, in the union. They, they literally, Michael, I know you know this, but included in our elections bill that was proposed here in Texas is a provision that would allow the state to overturn elections based simply on the allegation of fraud. That, that is no longer a democracy, and the For the People Act can stop that. What causes me to think in these terms, Congressman, is that leaked audio. The Intercept had it this week where Senator Manchin was heard on a call, and he suggested an openness. Let's listen together. I looked back in 19, I think it was 73, when it went from 67 votes to 60 votes. And also, what was happening, what made them think that it needed to change. So I'm open to looking at it. I'm just not open to getting rid of the, of the filibuster. That's all. And uh, right now, 60 is where I planted my flag. Uh, but I'm, uh, as long as they know that I'm going to protect this filibuster, we're looking at good solutions. What he's saying he's open to is the idea of reducing that number from 60 to something less, as in the past it happened when the number was 67. So maybe if all of a sudden it's a Joe Manchin compromise that's on the receiving end of a no vote from all the Republicans, maybe there's movement on the filibuster. You know, at some point, Michael, it's going to come down to this question. Is it going to be the filibuster or democracy? 
because it's looking like, as I count the votes in the Senate, that you can't have both. And I know that Senator Manchin believes in this country's right to vote. And I know that he said inaction is not an option. And so I'd like to think that I know that he'll do the right thing when that choice becomes that clear. Uh, we're gonna have to see what happens this week when the Senate begins voting. But look, I think all of us who care about democracy can't just sit back and watch. This is not a spectator sport and the fight for democracy will not be air conditioned. You gotta get out there and march, protest and rally. You gotta get in the faces peacefully and nonviolently of those who represent you and make sure that they do the right thing because 245 years in this experiment, there's nothing that guarantees us another year or another 245 for that matter. It's it's on the line right now and we've got to win. It's this summer. It's, it's really an all or nothing proposition. So um, we're all gonna do our part here in Texas. I feel like we've done as much as you could ask us to do. Now the Senate needs to do theirs. Are you accepting of the compromise that he's put forth? I'll put up on the screen some of the critical components of it. Make election day a holiday. There's, it seems like there's universal democratic agreement on that. Ban partisan gerrymandering. That's a good thing. Mandate 15 consecutive days of early voting. How about this? Require voter ID with allowable alternatives, utility bill, et cetera. How does Congressman Beto O'Rourke feel about that? Well, that would be an improvement over what we have in, in Texas, where you can use your license to carry a firearm to prove who you are at the polling place, but you can't use your, your student ID or a utility bill to prove who you are at the polling place. So it's better than what we have. It's, it's not as far as I would like us to go. And what's missing from this is automatic voter registration and same day voter registration. There were 7 million eligible Texans who did not vote in the 2020 election, many of them unregistered or with other barriers in place. Um, the other thing I'd add, Michael, is getting the power of big corporate donations out of our politics by elevating the power of everyday citizens to donate and have that matched at the federal level. That ensures that you know insurgent candidates have a chance to challenge the incumbents and that those who are locked into their, their positions can be effectively uh, competed against. When you add uh, nonpartisan redistricting commissions to that, so there's no more gerrymandering, and I think that's a reference in his compromise, then, then you really begin to approach a level playing field in our elections going forward. So I see some good things in there, but I'd like to see much more progress than that going forward. And finally, Senator McConnell, I think, believes he has a winning issue when he presents this as the, the federalizing of the running of elections, traditionally a very local practice. Your thought on that is what? That was exactly the argument in, in 1965, but uh, luckily uh, logic prevailed. And, and we understood as a country, you can't trust Mississippi and Georgia and Texas to guarantee the right to vote to black citizens because they were denying it uh, in practice and in outcome. So you get the 65 Voting Rights Act, which yes, is uh, federal mandates that affect how state-run elections are, are held. So there's a long-standing precedent for that. And at this moment that we face the, the second emergence of Jim Crow, we need to meet it with the force that we did with the first Jim Crow, a, a Voting Rights Act of our time. That's the For the People Act. The Senate must pass that. Appreciate your being here. I'm, I'm convinced there's, there's more afoot than just a vote that perhaps is gonna take place as soon as Tuesday. Congressman O'Rourke, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Even more disturbing new video now coming out of the Capitol riot. Hard to watch. 
Trump supporters taunting, stalking, even punching officers. Question, why aren't these images moving the needle? I've got a theory. And nearly six months later, we learned former Vice President Pence being ostracized yet again by some conservatives. New videos released by the Justice Department give us a deeper look into the violence displayed at the Capitol on January 6th. The video, which I must warn you, is disturbing and contains profanity, comes as Republicans continue to downplay the dangers of that day. Watch. Are you with Harrowing, but is there any amount of evidence that will get Republicans to get real about what happened that day? Let's discuss with Natasha Alford and Charlie Dent. Charlie, back in the days when I was a Republican, the party boasted of its status as being supportive of law enforcement. What happened? Well, Michael, I, what, me too. Uh, you know, I was always endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police and the State Troopers Association. I was always proud of those endorsements. I still think most Republicans will receive those types of uh, endorsements. But given what happened with, uh, in recent days uh, with, the, uh, uh, with that vote uh, and uh, with you know, a lack of defense of, of law enforcement with respect to January 6th, I think this certainly you know, tarnishes many Republicans' uh, you know, uh, images with, with the law enforcement community. It's, it's, it's a problem. I am, I am frankly stunned that so many will yell about defunding the police, but are reluctant to defend the police in this case. That's not true of most of them, but- Natasha, but Natasha, I don't get the drip, drip release of these videos. And I, I know that CNN has been very aggressive in trying to get it all into the public domain. It does make me wonder if we had seen all of this imagery back at the time of the impeachment vote, would it have mattered? Would it have changed anything? Unfortunately, I don't think it would have changed anything. And that's because so many members of the GOP are loyal to uh, whatever keeps them in power. And in this case, it was supporting a narrative uh, that Donald Trump did nothing wrong, <laughs> that he was only fighting for freedom. And, and so many of uh, their constituents are these individuals who are rioters who see themselves as freedom fighters. And, and when I, I'm sorry, when I look at that video, I'm terrified. That is someone who is juiced up on conspiracy theories and someone who thinks that you know, there are no consequences, essentially that he can be violent and he will be protected. And so I, I think it's that ideology that these folks see themselves as patriots uh, doing the, the bidding of what it takes to protect American democracy that allows them to continue this lie and it allows the GOP to come around them and play along. So I was watching Wolf Blitzer earlier today and Wolf was interviewing our colleague, Drew Griffin, talking about his special that'll air on Sunday night, all about the events of January 6th. And they ran a piece of tape that I, I think had a most telling comment by someone who allegedly, reportedly, was caught up in this hijinks. I wanna roll the tape and then make a comment about it. Do it. I'm with CNN, Mr. Carl, Drew oh, Griffin. Thanks, man. I'm good. Have I, a good day. I've been talking to your mom and your, your sister. They mentioned that you might want to say something to us about... Like, about what? About your case and... 
Whether or not you feel bad about it. I feel bad about my case. Feel bad about what you did? Um, well, actually, the things I did, I was hanging out with some of the wrong people, it seems like, but I didn't really do anything, so I feel pretty good that my case is going to come out and show that. So. Do you feel like you were manipulated into going to the Capitol? No. No, I really got nothing to say to you. I, I don't watch your garbage anyway. So it's that last line that I, I wanted to play, you know, on this network. He doesn't watch our garbage. And that's when the light bulb went off. And I said to myself, it's telling half the country, right, is watching an outlet where they don't show this footage. So, you know, we look at it, Charlie Dent, and we say, holy crap, like who could tolerate that? That guy, by the way, is a former Marine. And half the country, I think, is oblivious to what we are watching routinely. Charlie, you go first. Yeah, sure, Michael. What's so scary about all of this is that there are so many people in our country right now who don't believe that our democratic process is fair or legitimate. Uh, and because too many elected officials have denied what happened on January 6th, I fear that uh, many uh, Americans uh, will simply say that you know, all elections are rigged and, they're, and because of this, the public confidence has been undermined in our democratic process. That's what's happened here. And you're right. We have a tribal society. You know, uh, people, people get their information from the sources that they're comfortable with and that reinforce their existing opinions or biases. And that's what's happening. So, but there's not an agreed upon set of facts anymore or agreed upon truth, sadly. Natasha, that is my point, that we're so siloed, that we're so hunkered down with adherence to particular outlets that unless you're clicking around, man, you're not getting the whole story. Yes, and I think certain outlets play to us being siloed. Uh, you know, there's a saying that he who controls the media controls the message and controls the minds, right? So, so the folks who are uh, withholding this information, who are spinning the narrative and, and trying to convince people that they have legitimate protests. There was actually a poll that said that uh, there was a 47% a, a of Republicans thought that this was a legitimate protest, even though we saw bloodshed and we saw people losing their lives. So if you're able to repeat a lie again and again, people will continue to believe it. And what is so disappointing is that politicians, elected leaders are complicit in this rather than, uh, you know, being independent and, and sort of being those protectors of democracy over party. They are willing to go along with the lie in pursuit of power. I'm, I'm not defending any of the conduct, but when I look at their faces, I think they believe they are Washington, you know, crossing the Delaware uh, in revolutionary times. Natasha Alford, thank you so much. Charlie Dent, as always, good to see you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. CNN also has new details about what happened on January 6th. As I just mentioned, Drew Griffin interviews those who were at the Capitol for a special report, Assault on Democracy, The Roots of Trump's Insurrection. It's Sunday, 9 p.m. Eastern. We turn from police officers attacked at the Capitol to officers in another city accused of going too far during protests last summer. One has just been indicted after this video surfaced, but his colleagues are taking dramatic action to show their support for him by walking away from their elite unit. The head of the police union is here to defend this drastic step, and that's next. About 50 police officers in Portland have resigned en masse in protest after a fellow officer was indicted for alleged excessive use of force. 
the officer, Corey Budworth, was part of a special team responding to demonstrations. Video posted on social media shows Budworth shoving a photojournalist to the ground and using a baton against her head during a protest last August. A grand jury indicted Budworth on a fourth-degree battery charge. That's a misdemeanor. Portland police union leader Daryl Turner says political venom demonized these public servants, and he joins me now. Mr. Turner, thank you so much for being here. I am totally sympathetic to what these cops have had to go through. A hundred straight nights. I read your October letter, Molotov cocktails, fireworks, explosive rocks, bottles, urine, feces, et cetera, et cetera. However, when I see that video, I just can't justify it. How can you? So I think one of the things you have to understand is we're one of the largest agencies in the country or one of the largest cities in the country who do not supply, equip their officers with body cameras. So the event is actually longer than what you see. What you see is a short segment of what happened. Um, you don't see uh, the, uh, the young lady trying to help unarrest somebody that's being arrested involved in criminal activity. Uh, you don't see what the chaos, the violence, uh, the sustained violence, not just that night, but over 150 days of sustained violence. That was night number 67 or 70 um, that we have been facing night in, night out. Our officers on the rapid response team and other officers have been out there on the front lines. Again, like you said, having objects thrown at them, uh, being threatened, threatening their families, being doxxed and actually people announcing their home addresses out on loudspeakers as they stand on the front lines without any support from our elected officials. And as a matter of fact, our elected officials would chastise and criticize our officers on a daily basis. These officers were frustrated what? because they cannot, they cannot keep the community safe in the way that they should be when the tools are taken away from them, when the ability to do their job is taken away from them. And so in this case, again, uh, we have a district attorney who has declined 80% of the uh, criminal activity, 80% of the cases that are brought to him from the criminal activity during those riots, 80%. Um, while so I, ex I, I accept everything, I accept, I accept everything you're telling me, but it, it doesn't alter when you, you know, Zapruder, as I like to say, the tape, I, I can, let's run it. I mean, I, you tell me what you see as I'm showing this to the rest of the country again, play it. There's shot I, number one. I, I, I cannot see it. Oh, okay. You don't have what we call a return. Well, there are two, there are two uses of the baton. The first knocking her to the ground and then another shot to the head. Can that be right. justified? And, cl and clearly what uh, the officer articulated in his report that he thought she was going to move in a different direction and it was an accident. So with that said, in, in, the, uh, in the administrative and internal investigations, that's where it should be combed out. But it's not a malicious, it's not intentional, and uh, it's not criminal. The district attorney said, in this case, we allege that no legal justification existed for Officer Budworth's deployment of force and that the deployment of force was legally excessive under the circumstances. I also took a look at the Portland Police Bureau policy on use of force, which says, Members striking or jabbing with a baton shall not deliberately target the head or throat, neck, spine, or groin unless deadly force would be authorized. You and I can agree that deadly force would not be authorized in this case, right? And, and as I said, he, the officer admitted it was an accidental strike as to the area of the body that it did hit. 
he anticipated her trying to stand up again, and she did not. Um, and so, like I said, in an administrative investigation, in an internal investigation, they could comb that out. But is this criminal? No, it's not intentional. It's not malicious. Uh, so, and had no criminal intent whatsoever. This is the same DA that doesn't follow the law that, like I said again, declines 80% of the criminal activity, criminal cases that have brought to him through those riots, through those 150 plus days of rioting. And so now on, the, on another case where it's clear that it was an accident, the officer wrote it in his report. He wrote a report that night. He didn't try to hide anything. He wrote in a report exactly what he did. There was no hiding what he did. Uh, he did not know it was on video till later. So he wrote exactly what he did. It, it was in conjunction with what the video said. However, that video was taken a short snippet and not a longer one because again, our elected officials refused to equip our officers with body cams, which would have shown a longer event. Okay, I have another question. What about the decision to resign en masse? Why not let the process address this? Do you think that that was a wise move from a public relations standpoint? And, and so this is not just, this was not the only incident. Uh, like I said, and like you said, there was a letter that we sent in October stating all the concerns, all the issues that the rapid response team had. They stayed on because they believe vehemently they're there to protect the community. They're the buffer between the rioters and the, and the community, the business owners, the residents who have been threatened in the city. Uh, the, the board up, the cities have been boarded up, has been burned, has been looted. And they are, they believe they're the buffer. They were doing this. This is a volunteer unit. This is not a unit that gets paid any extra money. This is a volunteer Understood. unit that has the skill and the strategic uh, subject matter experts to be able to handle crowd control issues. Uh, there is no police agency in the country that dealt with the uh, uh, the violence like we did, the sustained level of violence over 150 plus I get plus it, I get Mr. Turner, I, I get it. I, I've been watching 3,000 3, miles away. I've, I've been watching it with, with, with great admiration for the people who are the thin blue line. Thank you for being here, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. With three Supreme Court justices picked by former President Trump, you might have thought that you'd know where the conservative supermajority would go on big cases, but think again. Our high court expert is here to show us how some key rulings are revealing a different kind of split, and that's next. When Justice Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court last October, Democrats seemed all too sure that she'd torpedo Obamacare and that the 6-3 conservative majority would transform SCOTUS for good. But if yesterday's rulings are any indication, from leaving the Affordable Care Act in place to their narrow ruling on religious freedom, the fault lines aren't between the left and the right, but within the court's own conservative wing. Let's get some perspective from CNN legal analyst, Joan Biskupic. You know, Joan, you and I have had conversations in the past about what will Kennedy do? It'll be a 5-4 decision, but what will Anthony Kennedy do? I read your great CNN.com piece, and it seems like you believe that Anthony Kennedy's legacy has been replaced by a triumvirate. Please explain. Sure, uh, and it's great to be with you on a Friday night and not just a Saturday morning, Michael. Uh, I think that we're, we're still going to see overall a more conservative court because Anthony Kennedy was to the left of both of these two new justices, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. But what these two justices are doing now with Chief Justice John Roberts is putting a break on the three conservatives to their right. 
Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch. Those are the three who want to overturn precedent, and they want to do it fast, they want to do it now, and they want to do it uh, as extreme as possible. But uh, these three conservatives who are in the middle, and they are all Republican appointees, they're all three people who we think would generally be against abortion rights, would generally be against gun control. So they're still they're still conservatives. It's just that they don't want to move as fast uh, as the others do. And let's just take these two cases. First of all, the Affordable Care Act uh, challengers really had such a a poor case. Uh, Even many conservatives thought it was never going to fly. And and it didn't. Not at all. The court outright dismissed it, didn't even entertain uh, the questions on the merits. So this was a little bit of an easier one for Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. And even Justice Clarence Thomas, Michael, joined the majority there to say, you challengers from Texas and other Republican states, you have no injury here. You can't come up and complain about the individual insurance mandate uh, when there's no penalty for it. There's nothing that your uh, your states have, have suffered in terms of a loss because of the law now. So that was an easy one to get rid of. But Michael, the one that was really complicated and different was this religious uh, freedom one, because uh, Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh have both wanted more uh, more accommodation for religious believers. Does the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, end as a trilogy for the Supreme Court of the United States? Or is there some possibility there could be a part four in the future? Oh, yeah. There, I'll tell you, there will always be challenges. There are still challenges percolating up toward the justices. But as far as the Supreme Court's concerned, uh, they don't want them. They don't want to, to see any kind of broad scale challenge anymore. That's for sure. So we can say, Michael, uh, tonight for our, our viewers that the, the act as a whole is here to stay. It's not going to be thrown out in total the way the Republican states have been trying for and what uh, former President Donald Trump had pushed for for his, his entire campaign had been built around that uh, back in 2016. And uh, so that's not going to happen. But will parts be, uh, individual parts be challenged? Yes, I'm sure. Uh, Maybe some things will be picked off. But for right now, this law that has had such a sweeping effect for, you know, some 31 million more Americans getting health insurance, uh, that's here to stay. A lot to talk about in the fall with some big cases after they take the summer off to be argued. Joan Biskupic, thank you as always. Thank you, Michael. For the first time, New York City changing the way it votes for mayor. Early voting in the primary is now underway and voters are making their decision using a ranked choice system. What exactly does that mean? Well, instead of voting for a single candidate, people can choose up to five candidates In order of preference, our wizard of odds, Harry Enten, is here with more. Harry, what's the purpose? What is it that people hope this type of system will do? Uh, They're hoping that it will first save money because there won't be the traditional runoff that you would have if no candidate reaches 40 percent of the vote. But it's also trying to give voters more options uh, so that they can fill out their ballot, you know, especially in a primary with eight candidates who major candidates who all have similar ideologies, uh, certainly compared to Republicans. It gives them an opportunity to express their preferences in a more complete way. 
So is there a front runner and does that front runner necessarily benefit from ranked choice voting? In other words, maybe you'd rather be everybody's number two on their dance card than a handful of number one. Sure. So look, if you look right now at the first choices, right, we had a Marist College poll that came out earlier this week. Eric Adams is well out, uh, out, well out in front of the pack with 28 percent. Catherine Garcia, the former sanitation commissioner, at 19 percent. And then Maya Wiley and Andrew Yang close behind there at 17 and 15 percent. What I should point out is pretty much all of the polls have Eric Adams out in front in the first choice preferences. But as you pointed out, Michael, we have to go through this entire process. And I'd like to take you through that if we flash forward to slide two here. And what essentially they have to do is number one, if we flash forward to slide two, look at this. First voters can rank up to five choices. We mentioned that. The candidate with the lowest vote total after a round is then eliminated. And then voter choices are then allocated to their next highest preference if the current choice is eliminated. And what essentially we do is we go through all these different rounds. This process continues until one candidate has 50% plus one. And as you saw in slide one, there's not going to be any candidate who has 50% plus one in the first round. So this is going to go on and on for a number of rounds. And unless anybody think that someone very intelligent like Harry Enten is sitting there with an abacus, it's all done automatically and people only cast that initial ballot and rank their five. It's just going to take a while, perhaps, for a tabulation. That's exactly right. And, you know, look at this. Look how many rounds that we might have to go through in order to get to this. We have to go all the way to round 12, round 12. And, and, and you can see how this works across your screen, right? In round 10, Eric Adams is at 34% and Garcia, 24%, Wiley, 22 Yang at 19 <laughs> in the Marist College. Well, this is crazy. Then Yang gets eliminated. Most of his vote goes to Eric Adams, who jumps up to 43%, but that's still not that 50% plus one. So then Wiley gets eliminated. And then in this particular poll, Eric Adams gets up to 56%. But to go back to your first question, could this change the winner? If we go to slide four, I think this is rather key. What you see in this in this slide is that on all the first round and all the polls in June, first round, Eric Adams led seven out of seven times. Catherine Garcia led zero out of seven times. But in the final round, if we jump all the way through the simulation, Eric Adams led only five of seven times. Garcia actually won two out of seven times in those polls. So yes, it is completely possible that someone like Eric Adams could lead on the initial preferences, but then you go through all of this math and we could end up with a different winner. And it could, for Michael to just tell you, this is going to take a week or more to figure out. Okay, listen, it sounds confusing, but I like it because it's a means of watering down the fringe and forcing candidates to appeal to a lot of different demographics. Harry Enten, thank you as always. Appreciate your being here. My pleasure, Michael. Are you staying at an Airbnb this summer? Like any hotel chain, there are good reviews and horror stories, but you don't hear much about the latter. And there's a reason. I'm gonna talk with the journalist behind a fascinating new look at the lengths to which Airbnb handles crisis management. Is it about putting the customer first or about damage control? That's next. What YouTube folks to do is take those cleaning products and clean the inside of the car. I'm talking fast, fast, fast. You need to go in the back seat, scoop up all those little pieces of brain and skull. Get it out of there. Wipe down the upholstery. Now, when it comes to upholstery, you don't need to be spick and span. You don't need to eat off it. Just give it a good once over. What you need to take care of are the really messy parts.
Who could forget Harvey Keitel, the wolf in Quentin Tarantino's classic Pulp Fiction? He was the fixer who cleaned up gruesome crime scenes with a calm head. I was reminded of that when I came across this stunning report from Bloomberg on how Airbnb has their own top secret team of fixers who quietly wash away the company's nightmares. Violent incidents that include sexual assaults, rape, even murder. My next guest looked into how Airbnb utilizes this so-called black box team and even spends millions of dollars every year to keep things under wraps. Airbnb told Bloomberg, quote, as much as we try occasionally, really bad things happen. We all know that you can't stop everything, but it's all about how you respond. And when it happens, you have to make it right. And that's what we try to do each and every time. Bloomberg's tech reporter, Olivia Carvel, joins me now. She wrote the story. So Olivia, tell me, what is the safety team? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Michael. So the safety team inside Airbnb is really an elite and highly secretive unit that operates for two specific you know, roles. One is to protect the individual in crisis when violent crimes occur inside Airbnb listings. And the second is really to protect the Airbnb brand. To be fair to Airbnb, they say, hey, we're talking about 0.1%. And as you pointed out in your piece, they are larger than the top seven hotel chains combined. So yeah, bad things happen, but the odds are way against them ever happening. Fair? Yeah, totally fair. This is the world's biggest hospitality company. When, you know, even on a night like tonight, millions of people are staying inside an Airbnb. So when you're talking about numbers that big, things are bound to go wrong. This is also a company that's based on trust between strangers. So when you have strangers sharing the same space, sleeping under the same roof, sometimes things go horribly wrong. Yeah, there was a line in your piece, which was just tremendous, by the way, where you said people meet online, money changes hands, and oftentimes they end up sleeping under the same roof. Well, of course, every once in a while, there's going to be something bad happens. I also remember that there was someone from Silicon Valley who was offered an investment opportunity, and he correctly said, I don't want to get close to this because I can see these sort of circumstances happening. That's right. That was Chris Sacker. In the early days, there were a lot of investors who were too afraid to touch Airbnb because they felt that the business model was dangerous. He actually said to them, like, you know, guys, someone's going to get raped or murdered in one of your listings and the blood could be on your hands. And I think that's a really important point what here is like, you know, how much money is the company really spending when things go wrong inside its listings? This is important. What am I giving up when I sign the service agreement? Right. So Airbnb has a terms of service. Any user who signs up for the platform has to sign this. And essentially what it means is if you want to you know, go into a dispute with Airbnb over something that happened to you during a stay, whether it's an emotional injury, a personal injury, you effectively sign away your rights to take them to court, to sue them in court. Everything is going to be handled in confidential arbitration behind closed doors. That's why you don't really hear much about these cases. You know, they don't reach the courts and they don't get in the public eye. Well, and what I also learned from this piece is that it's very difficult to do a cross-reference between the addresses of the properties and the local crime role. You were able to do that, for example, in, in Miami. Take my final 30 seconds and tell me what you found. I mean, it's, it's impossibly hard to get a sense of, 
you know, what kind of an impact short-term rentals have on crime rates in neighborhoods. I spent weeks trying to, to answer that. And really what we discovered is you just can't cross-reference the data. And I think that's an important point here is transparency around the data. So users can understand how safe they really are and law enforcement can understand what kind of a risk and what role do short-term rentals play in the crime rates in local neighborhoods. No one really understands the always, scope of this problem. I, I was also impressed with the caliber of individual and the experiences that they have in crisis management, the CIA, or running political campaigns that they've hired to be involved in this process. It's a great piece. Thank you for being here to discuss it. Thanks so much for having me. We'll be right back. Thank you so much for watching. Please join me tomorrow and every Saturday morning at 9 Eastern for Smirconish right here on CNN. Don Lemon, tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.